to realize what is symbolized here. Help us to know that it speaks of thy love for us, a love that is so great that Jesus Christ came from heaven and walked on this earth and endured the scorn and hatred of men and was nailed to the cross for us. But we thank thee, our Father, that the story does not end there, but that Jesus Christ rose again, that he intercedes in heaven for us, and he lives in our hearts as we turn to him by faith. And so, Father, make this a time of humility in our lives when we recognize the depth of our sin. Make it a time of joy as we recognize thy love. And make it a time of hope as we recognize what Christ has done to bring us salvation and hope for the future for all eternity. Lord, we thank Thee that today on this Worldwide Communion Sunday we recall that we are united together within the body of Christ with believers throughout the world. Lord, in places that we have never heard of, today there are Christians kneeling, rejoicing in what Thou hast done for them in Christ as they turn to the Lord's table. In cathedrals and churches, in houses and even out in fields and forests in very difficult places of the world. Across the whole spectrum of the world there are believers that belong to us and we to them because we belong to Christ. Lord, give us a sense of true communion with them today and help us to rejoice and to pray with for them even as they would pray for us in the temptations that we have in our materialistic society. But Lord, above all of that, we remember that we are united not only together with other believers, but we are united with Thee in Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for the oneness that we have with Thee. And we thank Thee for the great hope that we have that someday we shall see Thee as Thou art, and then we will be like Thee. Father, as we think about what Thou hast done for us, we recognize how many in the world there are who have never heard the message of salvation or who have scorned it or treated it with neglect and indifference. We pray for our world. We pray for its leaders. We pray for our own nation as it continues its process of electing a president. We pray for Thy wisdom upon the people of our world and upon the leaders of our nation and other nations as well. But we pray as all, also that thy people might be faithful in exalting Christ. And we pray that the great host of even billions of people who have never really heard and understood the gospel, we pray that those who know thee might be more and more faithful in proclaiming that word to the ends of the earth. Now, Father, there are needs that each one of us sense today in our hearts. There are concerns that each one of us have for other people. And we commit those situations into thy care, knowing that thou art infinitely more concerned than we ever could be. And so we come to thee, casting all of our cares upon thee, 
knowing that thou carest for us. This we pray with thanksgiving in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. 27. Let us hear the word of God. The setting here is one of the trials of Paul. Here we read these words. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix arrived with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That is enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. May God the Holy Spirit add to our understanding of this, God's Word. Let us bow in prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we bless you already for that witness which you have borne to us through the strong statements of faith which we have sung through the powerful creed which we have given assent and expression to, 
which binds us with Christians down through the ages and around the world who know your intervention and your power to save us. We thank you also, our Father, for the words we have just heard sung and for that testimony which speaks so eloquently to our minds and hearts of the meaning of this sacred Lord's Supper, the celebration of our salvation. All of us know that we need to be saved. Every single one of us know that we lack in righteousness and in self-control and that we must look forward to a day of reckoning with thee. And therefore, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for gifts which you have made available to us for our use and for the privilege we have of bringing to you these tokens that represent a part of what we earn and have. And we ask that it may be supervised by the Holy Spirit for one purpose alone, to bring honor and glory to your name and the blessed name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name they are dedicated. Amen. My voice sounds a little scratchy this morning, but please don't feel sorry for me. It doesn't hurt. It just sounds a little uncomfortable. I want to pick up some things which I think will prepare us in the brief minutes that we have before we look to the Lord's Supper. First of all, I want to go, you remember last week we had an introduction to Paul's entry into the city of Corinth a horrible cesspool of iniquity, a city of 750,000 people, where there was not, so far as we know, one single Christian when the blessed Apostle Paul came there and began his ministry of the Word and the sacraments. And so later when he writes back to that church, correcting things that have gone wrong, people who have split up into various groups, pitting one preacher against the other. People who have even gone to court with other Christians, suing them for one thing or the other. Immorality of the grossest, most horrible kind of had sprung up in the church and it had to be corrected. There were errors in doctrine. People saying that Jesus had not been raised from the dead and that had to be stopped and there were abuses at the Lord's table. And so he writes, speaking about that and giving us the warrant by which we examine ourselves before we come to the table today and tie it into the scripture which John Akers read in your presence a moment ago. Now I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in J.B. Phillips' translation. To partake of the Lord's Supper is a supremely serious thing. He's writing to the Corinthians now. The teaching I gave you was given me personally by the Lord himself, and it was this. The Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body 
which is being broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Similarly, when the supper was ended, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new agreement in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. This can only mean that whenever you eat this bread or drink of this cup, you are proclaiming that the Lord has died for you, and you will do that until he comes again. So that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord without proper reverence is sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. No, a man should examine himself thoroughly, and only then should he eat the bread and drink of the cup. He that eats and drinks carelessly is eating and drinking a judgment on himself, for he is blind to the presence of the Lord's body. That's Philip's translation of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 following. Now back to our text this morning and back to what we heard sung just a moment ago as preparation. We come to the Lord's Supper because we need salvation. The logic of salvation is here. Do you really seriously think for one single second that you have done what you are supposed to have done with your life? Who of us can say that we have? All of us know that we have come short of what God might have expected of us and might expect of us when we look at it from the standard of his word. And so we realize that it's there. That beautiful hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, which Elaine sang a moment ago, speaks to us from the heart of a man who suffered terribly, William Cooper. It was my privilege to serve, uh, to study at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and I sat right next to a man at the National Library of Scotland who was an American Fulbright scholar working in the field of literature and studying Cooper. We worked together and we talked often about William Cooper. And he told me many interesting things regarding that remarkable man. How when he was a little child, six years of age, his mother had died and he was an only child. And then his father, not knowing what to do with this sensitive little boy, nervous and trembling, had him sent off to an English boarding school where he was bullied and ill-treated. And it was no wonder that his life was full of fear and nervousness. There came a time in his life when he was dreadfully afraid of his sins, so much so that he thought that probably the best thing for him to do when he was grown was to end his life. And he made attempt after attempt to destroy himself. But by the mercy of God, there was a good physician whose name was Dr. Cotton, who was kind to people who were nervous and distraught and afraid and who had lost their confidence and who had gone into depression. He showed to this man, William Cooper, kindness. And then he introduced him to a remarkably converted man whose name was John Newton, the man that wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and what a wretch he was. 
a slave captain, an evil man in every sense of the word, and then profoundly converted. Well, it took such a man as John Newton to speak to such a tender conscience as that of William Cooper and to assure him, to assure him that God, because of what the sacrifice of Christ had wrought, could take away his sins, all of his sins, and that he might know full and complete forgiveness and that his mind might be filled with comfortable hopes of heaven and the assurance of the love of God and that he was a creature of dignity and of worth in the sight of God. And this brought to William Cooper uh, a great joy to his heart so that he could say, redeeming love has been my theme and will be till I die, because he knew the joy of that salvation. Well, how do we come into that salvation? When Paul was brought before this Roman governor, Felix, he looked into the face of a thoroughly dissolute man. Felix had even married one of the granddaughters of one of his three marriages was to a granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. He had been born a slave and through his cleverness had risen to be a sort of king in this part of Judea. He had great power given to him, but he was a man who knew how to take bribes and a man who knew how to placate people by persecuting other people, and he was not a good person. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said he ruled with the prerogatives of a king, but with the mental attitude of the type of beastly, uh, unscrupulous slave that he had one time been. And so Felix is one of those before whom Paul must go and be judged. It's an irony of history that we would never have even known the name of Felix had it not been for the fact that Paul was in his presence. And in studies that we will have in weeks that come, I will go back and give you the background, but we don't have time for it this morning. One day, Felix, who was now married to a Jewess, Felix is a Roman, and he's married to a Jewess whose name is Drusilla. And even people who live in marble castles, and if you saw Abba Iban in his marvelous program on the heritage of the Jewish people, you will have seen some of the ruins of, of Caesarea, an incredibly remarkable city for its architecture and the wealth that went into the building of it, named in honor of Caesar Tiberius. Felix was there in that city. And in those marble halls, this little Jewish man who had been in a riot and had been beaten time and again for his faith in Jesus was brought. And even people at court often get bored and want to hear something new and novel. And perhaps one day Drusilla, who was Jewish in background and would have known of the predictions that one day Messiah would come, had spoken to 
Felix and said, you know, I've heard about this particular sect that follow that Nazarene who claims to be the Messiah, and they say he's risen from the dead, and even that he will one day come again. I think it would be entertaining to hear from him. And so Felix ordered that Paul should be brought into their presence. He thought it would be entertaining. And so we read the words, but some days later Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. What a privilege. Oh, how I wish Paul would walk in here today and speak to you about faith in Jesus Christ. And that you could look at that old battle-scarred warrior for Jesus and hear him speak and know what he had to say. Well, Paul did not trim his message to suit the audience to whom he was speaking to gain their favor for himself. He spoke with one purpose in mind. You know what he wanted to, to do and what he would want to do if he was here and what I want to do this morning? I want you to be saved. I would rather for anything else in the world to know that you heard the gospel and that you are right with God and that you are eternally saved than to know anything else. Paul was not concerned that people would go away saying that that was a marvelous intellect that had been demonstrated and that his literary illusions were remarkable and that he had quite a gift of language and communication, and that he was a powerful speaker, and that it was a great message. No, he had as his purpose the winning of those to whom he spoke to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to bear that testimony. John Henry Newman, a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church, has a book of university sermons, which I was looking at the title of one yesterday, and he was, it was on this very theme right here. And he said, the motive for preaching should be the salvation of those who hear the sermon. My, what a wonderful lesson that is, that the motive for preaching should be the salvation of those who hear. I wonder if we take salvation seriously enough. Well, Paul knew that this man and this woman needed salvation. And so he began to speak to them what helps us in preparing for the Lord's Supper concerning righteousness. That's a right relationship to God and a right relationship with each other. For the Ten Commandments have commandments that deal with our relationship with God and also commandments that deal with our dealings with one another. How do we stand when we come to the Lord's Supper today? Have we cheated other people? Have we lied to other people? Is our word any good? Is our conduct and attitude toward them what Jesus Christ would have it to be? Have we made any serious effort to correct it? Is there righteousness there? A righteousness that would be approved of by God who knows our hearts and our motives? 
He spoke to this man about righteousness, who took bribes, and who dealt justice in a wrong way. And then he spoke to him about self-control. Self-control means discipline. Here is a man who discards one life, takes another, who satisfies his own lusts. What a message this, is, this would be for the church today and for America today. Last week, I was citing from this big new book on Solzhenitsyn. And Solzhenitsyn tells in this book in a speech that he made to the Freedoms Foundation in Valley Forge how shocked he was by the concept that Americans have a freedom after having lived all of his life in a totalitarian police state in Russia. And this is interesting. Now, I grant you that some of this is exaggerated, but, but listen. Freedom. Freedom to fill people's mailboxes, eyes and ears and brains with commercial rubbish against their will. Television programs that are impossible to watch with a, scene, with a sense of coherence. Freedom to force information on people, taking no account of their right not to accept it or their right to peace of mind. Freedom to spit into the eyes and souls of passerbys with advertisements. Freedom for publishers and film producers to poison the younger generation with corrupting filth. Freedom for adolescents of 14 to 18 to immerse themselves in idleness and pleasure instead of intensive study and spiritual growth. And then he goes on to describe how we create nightmares and you watch a little video rock and you'll get the scene. Create nightmares to be freed of the nightmare of boredom. He has a wise word to speak to the West when he tells us of the misuse of freedom. And here we have Paul speaking of our need of righteousness and our need of self-control, which is discipline. Freedom without responsibility is chaos. And then of the judgment to come, and then we have to come to close, the judgment to come. Do we ever think about the judgment to come? This morning I had, Rob was trying to sing it for me back there in old Appalachian ballad. That's, I guess that's why I'm on this early American music theme this day with how firm a foundation and there is a fountain, those tunes. But there's a lot of things that can be wafted into the soul there. The judgment to come. You ever hear any sermons about the judgment to come? Is that in the Bible? It certainly is in the teachings of Jesus. And it certainly is in what Paul is saying before this esteemed leader of the Roman government in his area. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 12, you read these words. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In the old Appalachian Carol, I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered for judgment before the white throne. And oh, what weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayers were too late. The soul that had put off salvation, not today, I'll be saved by and by. I have no time now to think of religion. At last, had found time to die. A lot of common sense and truth in that. The judgment to come. The judgment to come makes us take seriously this life so that we invest it with a seriousness of purpose that ought to be there. Now, when we've looked at these things and we have failed with righteousness and with self-control and are fearful of the judgment and we read of Felix that he became frightened, that he trembled and said, go away. I remember James Stewart in Edinburgh preaching on this. When he got to this point in that marvelous, dramatic way he had of speaking, he screams for the guards to come and take this prisoner away, that he does not want to think about these solemn things anymore. But you don't need to end it that way. You don't need to end it that way. Because this Holy Supper speaks of forgiveness. We may come to the Lord just as we are, lacking in righteousness, lacking in self-control, afraid of the judgment to come. And we may find what William Cooper found. We may find one who has offered to us his sacrifice to take away our sins and no salvation. And when we know that salvation, then we can joyfully take the Lord's Supper, joyfully take it, knowing that we are right with God and that we have been strengthened to live a better life under his lordship and guidance and that he will bless us in the living of that life. Last week, after our service, Billy Graham was here and spoke about his trip to Russia. And it was raining, and we went up to his house to eat some, something after the service. And there were just the four of us there in the living room and a big, big fire in the fireplace. They have an enormous fireplace. And it was kind of cold, and I was overwarming by the fire. And Billy was talking about the Russian Orthodox Church and about the fact that there was a spiritual revival seething in the hearts of many people that we cannot understand in the West because of the lack of freedom of information that exists in that country. And I told him then what I had once read in Anton Chekhov, the Russians have great, great writers, 
And Chekhov has a tremendous scene in which he is telling of a Russian Orthodox priest who had gone out one time during the Easter season, and that comes early in Russia, and snow is still likely to be everywhere. And he got caught in a snowstorm. And of course, he sought shelter, and the place that he found was a simple peasant's cottage. And there in that peasant's cottage, when he knocked at the door, there came a woman to open the door, and she was frightened by this priest with his beard and his cassock and his crosses. She was a widow, and her daughter was there, who was also a widow, and they were poor peasant people, and they never had any company like this. And he asked if he could come in, and he came in. He knew they were afraid of him, and so to put them at their ease, he went over and warmed himself by the fire as I was warming myself there by the fire in the Graham's room and thinking of that. And to put them at their ease, he told these peasants how one time Peter had denied his Lord while he was warming himself by a fire in Caiaphas' courtyard in Jerusalem. And then he looked up from the fire at the faces of these peasants and saw that tears were actually streaming down their faces and falling off on their clothes. And they were greatly moved that Peter had denied his Lord while warming by a fire. And they felt sorry for Peter just as much as if he'd been a neighbor right next door to them. And then he told how Peter was restored and forgiven. And the priest left and went back out into the snow again. And as he journeyed on, he began to think that he had learned something in that cottage that he had not learned in the theological seminary. He had learned that the gospel, the good news about God in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he brings, has nothing to do with time. That it was like a golden chain that stretched all the way from Caiaphas's courtyard to that humble cottage where these peasant people were. That they could feel the presence of God and know the forgiveness and the love of God. And so that is true. And so here, in unbroken continuity, the Blessed Supper of the Lord is observed to this day, and it speaks to us of forgiveness. And it means that we who are unworthy, who have examined ourselves and confessed our sins to the Lord, may ask his forgiveness and know his forgiveness and be brought into fellowship with him just as truly as we can touch and taste and see these elements which represent his sacrifice for us. Let us bow in prayer. Save us, O God, from the blindness which is not even aware that it is sinning, from the pride which cannot admit that it is wrong, 
from the self-will which can see nothing but its own way, from the self-righteousness which can see no flaw within itself, from the callousness which is sin so often that it has ceased to care, from the defiance which is not even sorry for its sins, from the evasion which always puts the blame on someone else or something else, from the heart so hardened that it cannot repent. Give us at all times eyes which are open to our own faults, a conscience which is sensitive and quick to warn, a heart which cannot sin in peace, but which is moved with regret to remorse, and so grant that being truly penitent, we may be truly forgiven, so that we may find your love is great enough to cover all our sins. Help us to take this feast aright, to know that it's for sinners, and that we may take it and be forgiven and strengthened against sin and more dedicated to thee. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.